how far are you willing to go for God? How far are you really willing to go for God? What are you willing to give up? To sacrifice? To hand over for Jesus? How many pleasures of this life would you allow him to take for his sake? Your family? Your friends? Your home? Would you even be willing to give up freedom itself for the sake of Christ? I don't assume that everyone here this morning is a Christian. I think it would be wrong to assume that. And so if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, is there anything in your life right now that you could say that of, that you would give up everything for this thing? You know, so often Christians throughout the ages have been pressed with these very questions. The only reason that we are not hit in the face with these questions every moment of our lives is only because in God's providence we are in a different time and in a different place than many of our brothers and sisters have been. In fact, throughout church history there has been a concept and idea that we in 21st century America in the West have forgotten it. It is the idea of the church militant. The idea that the church itself is on the very battlefield of spiritual warfare. And that in warfare there are sacrifices that must be made and there are lines that must be towed and there are battles that must be fought. Just over 500 years ago, our brothers and sisters in Europe were awakened to this very idea as they came to study God's Word and note the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. They came to understand that Scripture taught something different than what they were hearing by those who were supposed to be in spiritual authority over them, and that, in fact, they had been abusing their spiritual authority, had been abusing God's Word, and therefore had been bringing glory to themselves and not to God. And so it was to those men and women who stood up, who stood up to protest that God worked among them in reforming His church. Men like Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin and Martin Luther that we remember this day so long ago. See, those questions that I ask you were not so foreign to them. And they came to understand that their entire lives were meant to be spent for the glory of God. This is how John Calvin said it. He said, he said, we are not our own. Therefore, as far as possible, let us forget ourselves and the things that are ours. On the other hand, we are God's. Let us therefore live and die to Him. We are God's. Therefore, let His wisdom and will preside over all our actions. We are God's. To Him, then, as the only legitimate end, let every part of our lives be directed. Ulrich Zwingli said it this way, You are God's tool. He wills to wear you out by use, not by idleness. O oh, happy man whom he calls to his work. 
And that great lead, lead reformer, Martin Luther, in reflecting on pastoring and preaching, said it this way, Dear Lord God, I want to preach so that you are glorified. I want to speak of you, praise you, praise your name. Although I probably cannot make it turn out well, won't you make it turn out well? Friends, what we find then when we look at our Bibles is that these great men and women of the Reformation in the 1500s, they did not make this stuff up. It was not a novel idea, but in fact, they stood, as we sang of just a moment ago, by faith in a long line of witnesses, witnesses in chains. We've been looking at this as we've looked at the entire book of Acts, but particularly we've seen this in the ministry of Paul. Paul has spent many times being beaten and ridiculed and mocked, and now, as we saw a couple weeks ago, he finds himself in hot water with the Jews, with his own people. And Paul has gone, we rem if you remember, to Jerusalem to preach during the Passover. It was a time when the Jewish people gathered together in the city of Jerusalem to remember what God had done in Exodus in passing over their homes and bringing judgment upon the Egyptian and bringing them out of slavery. And so they gathered to remember that. And Paul thought, this is as good a time as ever to come and talk about the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who redeems us from God's looming judgment. With that being said, Paul had been warned by his friends and, and even by prophets who had come down from Jerusalem and, and even by the Holy Spirit himself that if he went to Jerusalem, he would find himself in chains. He would find himself arrested and beaten. But it was in despite of these warnings that Paul marched on that costly road to Jerusalem, knowing that his sufferings that were ahead of him were actually a gift from God. And so from now to the final week in December, we're going to be finishing our study of the book of Acts, particularly looking at Paul's final setting out for the city of Rome. But this setting out is different than all of the other ones those first three missionary journeys were of Paul's own volition. He went to those cities because he felt called by God, and so he went. But now we're going to find that his journey from Jerusalem to Rome is one that he does not choose for himself. It is one that is chosen for him, and so he goes in chains. But at the same time, in this dark time, we see God continue to use Paul, and we see the fulfillment of what Jesus promised back in Acts 1, 8, fulfilled. Do you remember what Jesus said there? Let me flip back there for us and just read it for just a moment. In Acts 1, 8, the risen Lord speaks to his apostles. And what does he tell them is going to happen? If you got your Bible, look there right quick. Jesus says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. The question of the book of Acts is, can Jesus do it? Is he powerful enough? Is he still in control enough? Is he actually alive and able to do what he said he's going to do? So over the next several weeks, we're going to see that, yes, in fact, Jesus can do what he said he was going to do, and he will complete his mission through this man, Paul. 
So this morning we're going to be looking at Acts 21, 37 through 23, 11. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me as we consider what it means for us to witness in chains. I won't read the whole passage here at the beginning. I'll just read the first half of it. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you can find that passage began on page 876. Just look for the little heading that says, Paul speaks to the people. That's where I'll begin reading in a moment. I'm just going to read uh, chapter 21, verse 37 through 2225 uh, to get our sermon going. So, friends, in honor of the reading of God's Word, although I know it is a long passage, let me invite you to stand. Our legs can grow a little tired so that our hearts may be strengthened. Amen. Friends, hear now the word of the Lord to us today, beginning in Acts 21, verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From then I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, was spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what has, you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him standing, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, 
Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So really, that's the whole first half of what we're going to look at today. I wanted to read the whole thing because in this morning's sermon, I really only have two points, two questions really that I want to present to you and that you can consider as we look at these two passages. So if you want to write these down there in your bulletin or whatever paper you've brought, these are going to be the two questions that we're going to answer. We're going to see this, this passage really answer for us. The first one is, do we witness to the work of Christ? Do we witness to the work of Christ? And the second, we're going to see in the second half of the passage today, is this. Do we witness to the resurrection of Christ? Do we witness to the work of Christ? And do we witness to the resurrection of Christ? I want to answer those two questions from this passage and close by considering how the work of Paul, like the godly of church history, has been handed down to us today. And as we do, friends, my prayer is simple. My prayer is that God would protect us from lazily floating through the Christian life, but that we would instead take up this life that God has purchased for us himself and that we would use it all of our days to glorify him in every circumstance. So let's begin by answering that first question. Do we witness to the work of Christ? You remember last time before we got to this passage how Paul ended up here. He had came to Jerusalem and he had met with James and the other elders of the, the Christian church in Jerusalem. And they had warned him that there were some Jews there who had really fundamentally misunderstood Paul's teaching. And so Paul kind of makes a concession that he's going to go. He's going to hang out with these four guys who have made a vow. He's going to go to the temple. They're going to cleanse themselves. But it's there when he gets in the temple that all of these Jews from all of these other places have made their way there and they see Paul and they get angry again, just like they had in every other city that he had been to. And so this riot breaks out. There's all of this confusion in Jerusalem, all centered on Paul. And so the, the leaders of the city particularly the Roman tribune, who is, a, who is a man. I know when we think of the word tri, tribune or tribunal, we tend to think of a group of people. But the Roman tribune is a single man. He arrests Paul. He beats Paul. And he wants to know what in the world is going on. Why are you causing so much unrest in my city? Before he's carried off, this is what he says. You see there in verses 37 through 40, in these initial verses, as the Roman tribune is confused at who he is, Paul begins to speak. And what does he speak first? He speaks the language of Greek. The native language for, for the, the Roman citizens. So the Roman tribune takes him to be somebody else. This, this Egyptian who, who had led these 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness. I don't know who that guy was, and, and it wasn't Paul, but he sounded pretty crazy, right? And Paul says, no, I, I actually have a Jewish background as do they, speaking of the people. He says, let me speak to them. It's funny because this is the main reason that Paul's on trial to begin with, that he's not Jewish enough, the Jews cry out. And so Paul's going to address them. He stands up, he gets them to calm down, and he begins to talk to them in the Hebrew language. Verse 40 tells us, 
We already see the boldness of Paul in this situation. And he addresses them how? Look back at 22 verse 1. Brothers and fathers. This is no accident on Paul's part. He begins by addressing them as the family that they are. He, he begins by initially hitting on their Jewish heritage, that he himself is one of them. And it's when they hear him speaking in their native tongue, which, which would have been Aramaic during that time, that they quiet down. That these Jews say, whoa, what is going on? This man who was speaking Greek just a moment ago is now speaking Aramaic. He must be one of us. He has just addressed us as fathers and brothers. Who is this man? Let's shut up and listen. And we see there in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 22 that Paul really highlights six things about his pre-conversion life when he was living as a Jew. Look back there, you, you, can, you can try to trace through these. First, he talks about being born into a Jewish heritage. I am a Jew just like you are. He tells them where he's from, that he's born in Cilicia originally. But that's not where he grew up. We, we learned something interesting here about Paul, that, that he was born in Tarsus, but he actually grew up in Jerusalem. He actually grew up amongst the Jews in particular, and this is why he's living in Jerusalem. He is learning the way of the Pharisees under this man, Gamaliel. You may remember him from Acts 5. You remember what he did there? He was the one who stood up and actually told the, the other Jewish leaders, hey, let's not kill these apostles. Let's, not, let's just flog them and let them go. Let's not imprison them. He spoke some sense back then. We find out now that, that, that this was Paul's leader, his mentor, his teacher. We see that Paul was brought up as a Pharisee. He, he talks about the strict manner in which he lived, that he was zealous for God. And, and he, 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 he relates to them a bit there, doesn't he? I, I was zealous for God as you are on this very day. Number five, we see that he was, he was persecuting the way to death. This is a phrase that Paul uses often throughout the book of Acts to talk about Jesus and those who follow him, taking up Jesus' own language, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, he talks about specifically where he traveled around, mentioning Damascus here. Damascus, a city that, 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 that he preached in after his conversion and, and then went back to in his missionary journeys. And what do we see here about Paul? What do we see in these first five verses of chapter 22? Really, we see that Paul really outdoes all of these other Jews who were there among him. He, he, he is top-notch Jewish, right? He's got the pedigree. He's got the teaching. He's got the education. He's even got the licks to prove that he went around trying to crush out those who had turned from Judaism to Christ. And so we find Paul now standing in the very place of those that he once brought to be killed. That Paul himself has taken up that spot of the ones that he once persecuted in becoming the persecuted himself. Friends, as, as, as you think about your old life, I wonder if you're able to trace it in this way, to see God's hand at work even in your life before you knew Christ. I know for some of you, there is a clear contrast of who you were before Jesus and who you were after you came to follow him. But for others of us, there's an unclear contrast. Perhaps we grew up in the local church. Perhaps we made a profession of faith at a young age. 
I even wonder for you, as you look back on your life, do you see the spiritual death that inhabited your soul even as you physically may have just been going through the motions? Friends, how might we then use Paul's own life here to help us see the religious side of our pre-conversion lives? There are ways in which we live and we act as if we are working our way to God, as if we are putting on a good picture. We see here then next Paul's own conversion on the road to Damascus. We've already seen this, heard this. We saw it in real time back in Acts 9, 1 through 19. As it happened, Luke recorded it there for us. But Paul here brings it up again. And basically he retells the whole thing. And it's, it's very similar to Luke's account. There are only a few things that are different. And so the question really is why does Paul bring it up here? Why does Luke intend to include it another time? He's going to include it even again in Acts 26. We'll get to there eventually in a few weeks. But why does he include it again here? Because it is essential to what Paul is saying to these Jewish people. Notice several key things that Paul, Paul highlights here. Showing his own wisdom. He mentions the great light from heaven that is shown around him. These Jews would have picked up on that right off the bat because the idea of a light shining forth is stuck in this Old Testament imagery. We see it throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Genesis 15 with, with Abraham and God making a covenant with him. We see it in Exodus 3 where, where God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. We even see it in, in Numbers 14 with the temple. And what do we find here? Well, we find something interesting in Acts that we find also in the Old Testament. You see it specifically in Deuteronomy 5.24, that when there's a bright light, often God speaks out of that light. And so what do we find Paul talking about here, this speaking out of the light? Well, he says that there was a voice that spoke to him, and what did that voice say? I am Yahweh, the God of your fathers. No. What does the voice speaking out of the light say? I am Jesus, Yeshua of Nazareth. I am Jesus. Now, Acts 19 does not mention Jesus of Nazareth. And so why would Paul include it here? To help them see who this Jesus is. It was a very common name during those times. And so he wants them to understand that the one who spoke to him out of the light was Jesus of Nazareth. The eyewitnesses are there and it says that they hear the sound of a voice, but they, they don't understand. The eyewitnesses see the light, but they don't see anyone speaking. It's a little bit different than what we read in Acts 9. But the two actually go hand in hand with each other to realize that, that, that his companions were there. They were witnesses to something crazy happening, but they didn't really understand it. And they had to actually help Paul get into Damascus. Now, why does Paul mention these different things here that, that Luke doesn't mention back in Acts 9? Primarily is to show that, that this Jesus is God. And he has every right to direct Paul. This is further proven by Paul's baptism and call to ministry. You see it there in verses 12 through 16 of 22. Acts 9 highlighted things from Ananias' point of view. But now in verses 12 through 16 here, we see Paul's point of view of his baptism and call. And what does he focus on here? Well, number one, he focuses on Ananias being a good Jew who is respected. So whatever Ananias says, you guys love Ananias, you should probably listen to him. And what Ananias actually says here, it's, it's really crazy. It shows that Ananias himself had made the transition from Judaism to being converted to Christianity. 
Look back there at what he says. And one, verse 12, And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing beside me, he said this, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And then he said, The God of our fathers, he's couching it in Yahweh, the God of our fathers, has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. He's speaking of Jesus here. He's speaking of Messiah, the one true righteous one. We see here then that there's a validation and commissioning from Ananias. This is why Paul's baptism gets brought up here. Some want to take this verse and, and say that baptism should be applied very quickly because it was applied very quickly to Paul. That's not the point of what Luke is trying to teach us, and that's not the point of Paul's baptism here, but it is to show that an actual conversion has taken place, and this is very evident by everything that has already happened to Paul, that he is actually a Christian. And so this baptism is a very naming ceremony for Paul that he has taken on the name of Jesus Christ. You see that at the end in verse 15, I'm sorry, 16. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name, and it is his way of being sent out. He's being set apart for ministry. As baptism shows in, throughout the book of Acts, it is a turning of a page of something new happening. This presents a big, bigger question for us then in thinking about Paul's conversion. What, what, what is conversion? What do we mean by conversion? It's a word that we use all the time and we shouldn't just assume that, that we get it or that our children get it or that our neighbors get it. So what do we mean when we say conversion? It's this idea of being turned from one ma manner of life into a completely different manner of life. It's, it's a changing of allegiance. That Paul's allegiance was to the Jewish system. But in Christ speaking to him, he realizes that his allegiance must change because a new dawn has happened, a new covenant has been set forth. This should be the very aim of our own evangelism as well. Friends, we are not here to make decisions. We are here to make disciples. We are here to see conversion. The goal of our evangelism is not a one-off thing where somebody prays some prayer and then they're good to go for the rest of their life and they have their ticket, their fire insurance to heaven. But the call of Christianity is to see people converted from one manner of life to another. And for some of us, it's not drastic, as I said a minute ago. But it is drastic in a spiritual sense. That our very allegiance has been changed. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, please hear this. As followers of Christ, we don't believe that we can change ourselves. We don't believe that we can work our way to God or that our good efforts somehow put us in right standing with Him. We can never cover the burden of our sin. We need one who would do it for us. And this is what Jesus has done. And so now we get to something new that we haven't heard before in Paul's account, there in verses 17 through 21. Back in Acts 9, Paul, Luke tells us there that, that Ananias learned what Paul's mission was going to be, but we're never actually told how Paul learns about it until we get here. This is something we didn't know. Look back at that passage. How did Paul learn what he was called to do? Now we find out. 
He's in Jerusalem, he's in the temple, and he's taken into a trance. Now, visions and, and trances are not something new in the book of Acts. We've waded through these things before. We've thought about them, particularly with Peter. And the, and the sheet comes down with the animals on it. And it's God's way of showing him that he has to go to Cornelius. The Gentiles are going to be reached with the gospel. It seems here that, that Luke is highlighting again that this is an option for how God can communicate with people. Let me put that out there. That, that this is an option for how God can communicate with people. But it's highlighted here, and it's highlighted through the book of Acts because it is special and it's not normative. What do I mean by that? I mean, this is not how God normally communicates with people. In fact, visions and dreams must always be weighed against his normative way of communication, which is what? The Word. The normal way that God communicates with us is through His Word. And if there's ever anyone who comes to you and says, I've had a vision, I've had a dream, I have a prophecy, it must always be weighed against God's Word. There is no such thing as new special revelation. If you receive a revelation from the Lord, it cannot be dislocated from His Word. And we see the same thing here, don't we? That is Scripture that is a fulfilling of what Jesus has already said back in Acts 1 in Paul's life. This vision played a significant role for Paul, and now it's going to play a significant role for these people. I mean, for the Jewish religion, if there was ever a place where you would expect to receive a vision from the Lord, where would it be? If you were a Jew and you thought you were going to have it go into a trance somewhere, where would the place that you would want to go into a trance be? In the temple! It would be in the very temple, wouldn't it? Because that is the center of worship. That is as close as you can get to God. And so the temple was the center of Jewish life and faith. The temple was the place where the high priest would meet with God himself. The temple was the place where sacrifices of faith were taken. But do you notice what Paul receives here? Paul receives a vision telling him to move beyond the Jews, beyond the temple beyond Jerusalem. And Paul's not met by just any high priest there in the temple, but he's met by the great high priest, the one who forever is making intercession. And Paul is not there offering a sacrifice for himself. No, in fact, the very Lamb of God, the very sacrifice that atoned for his sin, shows up in the temple. And what does he tell him there? tells him to go. And Paul's telling of his vision is the death blow to Judaism. That's all that it is. There's no longer a need for a high priest. But in fact, we are a kingdom of priests. There is no longer a need for a sacrifice, but for Jesus himself pleads the merits of his blood. And there's no longer special access to God apart from Jesus. But Jesus is God in the flesh and the vision claims as much. The sufficiency of Christ here is, is woven throughout this vision. That he could enter into the temple as the exalted one and speak a word to Paul. Why is all of this worth noting? Because Paul knew exactly what he was doing. He's not just telling his life story. I, I think we can read this passage and be like, oh, Paul's just talking about what happened. That's not what he's doing here. 
He knows exactly what he's doing, and I don't want you to miss it. He's proclaiming the truth of who Christ was and who Christ is. He is laying out for them the heaviness of the reality of who Jesus of Nazareth really is. Notice how through the entire thing, he just keeps coming back to the work of Christ. That it was Christ who spoke to him on the road. That it was Christ who spoke to him in the vision in the temple. And so we see that the Jews are sent into a rage because this Messiah that he's talking about, it does not meet their expectations. Or it does not pacify their desire to be the only people of God. And so we get there, verse 22, up to this word, what is the word? Gentiles, the ethnos, the nations. Up to this word they listen to him. Then they raise their voices. They're sent into a rage because of the very mission of God to go to the nations. Friends, what I want you to understand then as we think about this is that, and I hope this isn't brand new news to you, but the Jesus of the Bible is always offensive. The Jesus of the Bible always steps on toes, but he is the Jesus that we must hold out, even if it's going to take people off. And so the question for you is, are you in tune enough with the Word and with the Spirit of God to be able to hold out this Christ? I fear for many of us, we have not spent enough time in God's Word knowing who Jesus actually is. And so when we talk to others about Jesus, it comes across as he's our spiritual boyfriend. But that is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible wants to take everything from you and turn it all for his glory. And this is what Paul has come to understand, and this is what he wants his own people to understand. Is Jesus Lord of their hearts, their families, their work, their neighbors? Do they engage the culture with Jesus? Friends, as we continue to be a church in today's day and age, we are going to be offensive. But the thing that we have to come to terms with is that the offense is ultimately against Christ and not against us. That when the world looks at us and they laugh and they mock and they scorn, and God forbid they do worse, it is not because of us finally and fully that they are so upset and that they rage, but it is because of the Christ of the Bible whom we proclaim. What particularly is so special about this Jesus then? Well, this is what we see in the next passage as we jump back into it. Paul's taken away from his own people. He's rescued once again by the very men that he's been called to go to, right? The, the Roman tribune, he, he's redeemed, he's brought out, he's rescued by the Gentiles. It's very odd. It's not the way you would think it would go. And so how will he navigate this situation? Well, let's look back at Acts 22, 25 through 29. Up to this word, I'm sorry, nope, jump to 25. I went too far up. Okay. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. 
And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. We see Paul here again use, use wisdom. He's cunning. So Jesus says, right, to, to be wise as a serpent but innocent as a dove. And this is exactly what Paul is doing. He says, I can use my Roman citizenship because it, it is illegal for them to beat an uncondemned Roman citizen. They're, they don't just go around beating Roman citizens. They may go around beating other people groups, but they're not going to beat Romans. And so I'm going to use my Roman citizenship and I'm going to get out of this situation. Because Paul's not... He's not just going to run headlong into suffering if he doesn't have to. And so he says, I'm, I'm a citizen. And the tribune calls Paul before him again. He, he's confused as ever, right? First he thought he was some Egyptian guy, and now he's like, wait a second, wh who, what are you? So what's he supposed to do? Well, Paul says who he is, and he says he's a, he's a Roman citizen by birth. He didn't buy his citizenship like the tribune did, but, but he is a citizen because he was born in Tarsus. He is a Roman citizen by birth. And so then we pick up there in verse 30 with what the tribune does with him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason, I love how Luke puts it here, the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Chapter 23, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. The Roman tribune here, he, he brings Paul in before the, the religious leaders of the day, the, the Jewish leaders of the day, historically known as the Sanhedrin. It com comprised somewhere between 23 and 71 Jewish leaders from different sects, different parts of the Jewish religion. And it says here that Paul looks intently at them, that he, that he literally stares them down. And he says, I have a good conscience. I've lived my life before God and I have a, a good conscience. Paul has submitted himself to God's will, and he has obeyed it. He has walked in integrity. This is, this is the same thing that we, we see years and years and centuries later with Martin Luther himself in the Reformation. Do you remember in the Diet of Worms, he's brought before them, and he's asked to recant everything that he's ever written. He's asked to, to say that, that no, I, I've actually written all untruths, and I actually am submitted to the Pope. And he takes two days to, to, to figure out what he's going to say, and he gets before them, what does he say? He says, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. See Paul, you see Luther just standing in the stream of Paul here, of living with integrity and peace before God. Friends, is it so with our own consciences? The conscience is the function of the heart and the mind in light of a known standard. And that standard is the Word of God. In light of the Word of God, how is your conscience this morning? Are there things that you are doing in your life that you, are, you know in your conscience are unwise? And maybe you can say, well, it's not sin. But you know in your conscience that it's wrong for you to do. 
Or are there those things in your life that you know you're sinning against God, and yet you continue to sear and burn your conscience until eventually it's deadened and you just go on, drifting away? Friend, Paul here is saying, based on the standard of who Jesus is and what he has said, he has lived right before him. He's living with a clear conscience and testimony for who Christ is. And well, because of that, friends, things don't go very well for Paul, do they? We see Ananias strike him. He has him struck there. And Paul pronounces judgment on it, taking up very much the same language of, of Jesus, right? This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees, isn't it? He said, you whitewashed tombs. You may be clean on the outside, but on the inside, it's dead. And the same thing's here true of Paul. He doesn't pull any punches. He says, you are a whitewashed wall. If we, if we may offer some interpretation of what he means there, he means that you look like a clean wall, but in the end you're just a wall keeping people from God. And so he's hit upside the mouth. And they say, don't, don't you know this is a high priest? And, and Paul, I think with a little bit tongue-in-cheek, says, I didn't know. But I know who the real high priest is. He's the one that you guys are speaking evil of. And so then we get to this final section here where Paul again uses his wisdom and his cunning to get out of the situation. Let's read verses 6 through 10 and see where it goes. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, the dissension a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And the wisdom of Paul here, relying on the Spirit to give him insight into the situation, he sees that amongst these Sanhedrin, amongst these Jewish leaders, there are really two sects that have, that have presented themselves. You have the Sadducees, who do not believe in a physical resurrection. They do not believe in angels. They do not believe in spirits. They're really sad, you see. And then you have the, some of y'all got that, and you'll never forget it. But then you also have the Pharisees, right, who, who are really, really, in their Jewish sense, very biblical. And so knowing the scriptures better than any other, they know that there are promises throughout the Psalms, throughout Job, of a future resurrection. And so Paul uses this division to save his own neck again, doesn't he? And so finally, again, we see that this apostle to the Gentiles is saved by the Gentiles. They come and they take him out. And Paul notes here, though, the real division over Christ is his resurrection. Now, I just want to close here and think about this for, for a moment. Because we often don't realize how significant the resurrection of Jesus Christ is for the Christian faith. We don't realize what division it causes because of what a claim it is, but what a hope it is for us in claiming that, that our Savior, 
the head of our faith, not only died but came back to life. We're saying something fundamentally different than every other religion that's, that has ever existed. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Every Hindu leader, whoever they are, are dead. But we believe that our Savior, the one who paid our ransom, actually rose from the dead and has ascended into the heavens. Not, not the sky heavens, but a spiritual realm. But he's there as a physical body at the right hand of the Father where he has not decayed or decomposed for over 2,000 years. I know I've said that before in this series, but I'm going to keep beating that drum because it is crazy. It is radical and it is scandalous, but it is the truth that we hold on to. Why? Well, Paul would, had written to the church in Corinth. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's a waste. It's pointless. And you're still in your sins. If he doesn't come back from the dead, our sins are not fully paid for. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are to be most pitied. And so we find, though, Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 6, that Christ rose from the dead showing that death has been taken to death, that sin has been paid for once for all, and our life is hidden in His life. And we are given newness of life, not just eternally, but presently. And this gets at the whole core of this passage, and that is the exalted Jesus. I wonder, if, as we've looked at this, if you've noticed how for Paul, witnessing in his imprisonment, even when telling his own story, he always comes back to what Jesus had done and is doing. See, for Paul, something we can fundamentally learn as we look at this passage is that Christ is living and exalted, and friends, he's working. Do you believe that, that Jesus is living and exalted, and he's actually working? As we gather this morning to sing to him, we're singing to a living Savior who has given us, given us a living hope and that he is actually building his church. And he does it by his word. He does it through the working of his Holy Spirit. And so, should we expect God's blessing in going against our conscience? No. Should we expect God's blessing in walking in unrepentant sin? No. Should we expect God's blessing when we've made this world our home? No. But we see here, through Paul, through the dangers, the toils, and the snares of Paul's imprisonment, that Jesus continued to bless him with wisdom and strength and integrity for the task that he had been called. And friends, he will do the same for us. So in that sense, this is a Reformation sermon. Because God's word is always re forming our hearts and reforming our minds to look heavenward, to look to glorifying God. And this is what we defend. This is why the church today must be as the church has always been, a church militant, a church ready to battle for God and for his word and for the Christ that it holds out. As we gather this evening with other churches, I hope that you will take up that heart, the very heart of Paul, she will stand arm in arm with brothers and sisters from all over this city, this county, to hold forth the goodness of Jesus Christ and Him glorified, exalted on our behalf. One more quote from a reformer. This is how John Calvin said it. 
A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet remained silent. May it never be so for us. Let me pray. Father, you are good and you are kind to give us your word, to give us an opportunity to sit in it for this time, and to teach us about what it means to be your people. God, I pray against any hardness of heart that is in this room, against any rebellion and unrepentance that may be found in our hearts, even now as we prepare to take this supper. God, draw us to repentance. Draw us to confess our sins to you and to sit in the goodness of Jesus Christ. Save those who are apart from you and renew those who are your own. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.